Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There are three moments when I remember looking at something in my hands and realizing that this thing was going to change my life. The first time was on my sixth birthday when my grandmother gave me a portable transistor radio. I was still awfully young, but I somehow knew that I could now control not only what I listened to, but where and when. A big deal when mom and dad controlled the radio. The second time was in 1999 when I was given a prototype of a device called an RCA Lyra. It was an early digital music player capable of holding up to an hour's worth of music. And no matter how hard I shook it, the music would not skip. For someone who liked to go running to music, that was a really big deal. And the third time was when I searched for and found an obscure song on my iPhone. I had just installed the Long Gone Audio app and was still very skeptical about this whole new streaming thing. The idea that you just paid for access and not to own the music was rubbish until that day when I figured it out. We've come such a long way when it comes to making music portable, especially in the 21st century. What was once science fiction is now reality. Taking our music with us is so easy right now that we forget how long it took us to get to this point and how much technology we had to go through to get here. This is the History of Portable Music, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second half of a program looking at how music became portable. On part one, we started with wind-up gramophones and moved through the transistor radio, the 8-track, the cassette, and the CD player. And now we're into the 80s, looking for some sort of portable device to take us beyond the compact disc. In the 80s, portable CD players came in two flavors, the kind you installed in your car after you bought it, and the fragile sort that you could walk around with. Both delivered great sound, but you were still stuck with pre-recorded discs. The big advantage of cassettes was that you could make your own mixtapes. That was the trade-off. Analog mixtapes that you had to fast-forward and rewind, or instantly accessible digital tracks, but only from pre-recorded discs. And this is where we encounter the mini-disc. This was a format that was somewhere between a CD and one of those old 1.44 megabyte floppy disks we once used in a computer. And it was another invention by Sony. They started working on mini-discs in 1983, about a year after the CD was introduced. It took nearly a decade to bring the mini-disc to market, with the first units going on sale in September 1992. Part of the delay was because Sony was also working on digital audio tape, or DAT, at the same time. But that format ran into a ton of problems and never really became a consumer thing. The mini-disc worked like this. A rotating magnetic disc was mounted inside a plastic case, which was played by inserting it into a slot or a bay of a dedicated player. Depending on the version, a single mini disc could hold 60, 74, or 80 minutes worth of data. Digital, CD-quality music. And it essentially worked just like the CD, except that you could record on it. And their anti-skip technology made for much, much more stable listening than a portable CD player. Every beat of my Amazing Sony Minidisc is the digital way to record your music on a disc and personalize your favorite mix. 
Sony MD lets you digitally record your favorite music and take it with you wherever you go. Make it down to Circuit City and make it. There were even in-dash mini-disc players for the car, made by Sony, of course. And as with the CD, the technology was licensed to other manufacturers like Alpine, Clarion, Blaupunkt, JBC, Kenwood, Panasonic, Pioneer, and others. The format did great in Japan and Europe. North America? Not so much. Some of us used mini-discs in the audio business. They were really handy for recording interviews. But overall, the mini-disc was a disappointment. However, there was a period of time when you could walk into a good-sized record store and find a small display filled with pre-recorded mini-discs. For some reason, I have one. And it's a version of Depeche Mode's Violator that was issued in Germany. Sony stuck with the mini-disc until September 2011. The last players were gone by sometime in early 2013. And if you missed the mini-disc boat, don't worry. Only about 22 million units were sold worldwide. And remember that the Sony Walkman sold 350 million. As a sidebar, it's probably worth mentioning that in addition to pre-recorded mini-discs, you could, for a while, buy pre-recorded DAT tapes. But like I said before, DAT machines were too expensive for the general public, so supplies of pre-recorded tapes were tight. And today, collectors pay way too much for these things. I've seen them selling for hundreds of dollars each. Not worth it, unless you're, you know, a freak about these things. I do have one, though. It's New Order's Substance Collection that was sold as a two-DAT tape set sometime in the 90s. And because we used DAT tape to back up ongoing history shows back in the day, we still have a working DAT player. Can, uh, can we play something from that, please? Yeah, that, that'll do The next big development in portable music was the MP3. This technology was developed by the Fraunhofer Society in Germany. Initially, they were looking for ways to send large amounts of audio data through old telephone copper wires. And the only way to do that was to compress the data using an algorithm that stripped out everything that was non-essential. Fraunhofer licensed this technology to everybody in 1993. And the first users were people who ripped CDs to their computer and hard drives. Now, remember, in the middle 90s, it was a really big deal if you had a 100 megabyte hard drive. A full CD was 640 megabytes, so you really needed to conserve space. You had to be picky with what you ripped to your hard drive. And MP3s helped do the trick. It took a long time to get the algorithms right. Early attempts were plagued by digital glitches that made things sound awful. In the end, though, the Boffins figured it out by using two types of audio. The first was, believe it or not, recording raw audio from hockey games. There was something about how hockey sounds in an arena with the skates slashing the ice and the puck booming off the boards that proved to be really tricky to compress cleanly. Fraunhofer engineers spent thousands of hours listening to the sounds of hockey and trying to compress them properly. The second was a 1987 recording by a New York singer named Suzanne Vega. She wrote this while sitting at a restaurant called Tom's on Broadway in Manhattan. And I know you know it because it's the same diner that was renamed Monk's Cafe on Seinfeld. 
The recording is an extremely clean a cappella performance. Knowing that it was really, really difficult to compress such a warm a cappella performance, the Fraunhofer people seized on it, trying again and again and again, thousands of times, to tweak the algorithms until they realized a clean, compressed track. They finally did it. So although she had nothing to do with the technical aspects of the MP3, Suzanne Vega has gone down in history as the mother of the MP3. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. In the middle 90s, with the internet starting to catch on, MP3s proved great for sharing music, even through clunky old dial-up modems. This had the recorded music industry freaking out for the first time over digital piracy. A similar freakout was one of the things that killed DAT tape, digital audio tape. The industry insisted upon a whole whack of copy protection measures, which rendered the machines basically useless for most consumers. Now, though, MP3s could be copied endlessly and sent around the planet at the speed of light. Fortunately, though, these music files were still confined to listening on computers. Well, not entirely. Let's, uh, let's, let's just back up a bit. In 1981, a patent was filed in the UK for a device called the ICSI. That's I-X-I. It was about the size of a credit card and could hold a whopping 8 megabytes of data, which was good for about three and a half minutes of audio. Remember that this was before digital compression was a thing. So although it was a nice start, it was, you know, kind of useless. And the ICSI disappeared. In 1997, a South Korean company called Sehan Information Systems introduced the first ever portable MP3 player, which they called the MP3 Man Model F10. Kind of like the Walkman, you know. It came in two sizes, 32 and 64 megabytes. And it initially sold for between $700 and $1,000. It used flash memory, meaning that unlike every other portable music device since the transistor radio, there were zero moving parts. It could not skip. You loaded it by docking the MP man in a docking port that you connected to your computer. RIP tracks could then be transferred over. How many RIP tracks depended on the bit rate. If you transferred uncompressed WAV files, the smaller unit could hold just six songs, and the bigger one, 12. But if you lowered the bit rate, the more music you could take out of your computer. Of course, the lower the bit rate, the lower the audio quality. With something like this device, an hour's worth of music was just about right for most people at that time. It took a while to load because we were still using parallel port connections, which were awfully slow. And the device ran on a single AA battery. So you can just imagine how long it took before you ran out of juice. The trouble began when a company called Iger Labs started importing the MP3 man and rebranding it for sale in the U.S. This happened at about the same time a company called Diamond Multimedia started selling the Rio PMP300. Check out this commercial. My mom says save some for your sister. Hey, there's one of those trash cans who puts the liner in the can. Do you think some guy comes in and switches the bags? Whoa, ice cream, I love it. You ever had a juice bar? Once I was 16, my teeth fell out on the same day. Jeez, that hat sure is blue. Hey, that swimming pool slide would really fast for roller coasters when you scream. Ah! Ooh, what's up? For you. Hey. Rio Carbon takes you away from life's small annoyances. 
best part, we find out he's really dead. It was a big hit over Christmas 1998, which scared the hell out of the American recorded music industry. This thing encouraged illegal copying and digital theft, they said. And the whole thing went to court. But Diamond Multimedia won the case based on a 1976 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that made it okay for Sony to sell VCRs. That decision said that such devices were legal because they allowed for private copying of material, copying of material for private use. Unfortunately for the Diamond Rio, it only sold about 200,000 units. But for others, this ruling opened the floodgates. Audible.com had an MP3 player for audiobooks, which held up to two hours of really compressed audio. Then there was the Sensory Science Rave, the iGEM IH100. Don't remember either of those. And the Creative Labs Nomad, which uh, I do. Then came the Compact Personal Jukebox. It had a hard drive with a capacity of 4.8 gigabytes, which was good for about 1,200 songs. Why would you need more than 1,200 songs? And for the car, there was the MPEG car and the Rio car, both in-dash MP3 players. Then it got confusing. Sony had a couple of digital players, but they used a proprietary codec known as A-Track, not MP3s. Windows-based players used a format called WMA. But then all these devices were suddenly and catastrophically wiped away, completely obliterated in October 2001. Can you guess what happened? Back in a moment. By 2000, portable music was reaching new levels thanks to custom-burned CDs, MP3s, and file sharing, especially this new thing called Napster. It was also around this time that Steve Jobs, who had arrived back at the struggling Apple computers, became focused on portable music players. He considered all of them awful. Apple contacted Tony Fidel, an engineer who had an idea for a new type of portable music player. It wasn't a bad idea, but it had been turned down by both Sony and Philips. Meanwhile, Apple discovered that Toshiba was developing a super tiny hard drive, and they quickly bought all the rights to it. The project to build an Apple-branded MP3 player was codenamed the P86. Most of the work was done outside Apple using a variety of suppliers. The appearance was inspired by a 1958 transistor radio made by Braun, while the controls closely resembled a phone made by the Danish manufacturer Bang & Olufsen. When the prototype was finished, nobody knew what to call the thing. That fell to Veni Chieko, a freelance copywriter hired by Apple to market this new device. Veni was a fan of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, and he thought that the all-white player looked a lot like the pods used by the astronauts of the spaceship Discovery for work outside the spacecraft. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Another thing struck Vinny. The new device was something that could be connected to and then operate independent from a computer, just like 2001's pods. And so it came to pass that this new device was christened the iPod. But then there was the matter of Joseph Grasso, a New Jersey inventor who had come up with that name, iPod, a few years earlier and trademarked it. He needed to be compensated, which took about four years to sort out, by the way. 
And then there was an office furniture company in Michigan, which used that name, iPod, as far back as 1991, or office furniture. That was sorted out. Then there were a few other patent disputes, all of which took years to clear up. Anyway, the iPod was introduced to the world on October 23, 2001. It had a 5-gig hard drive, and that was good for, well, about a 1,000 songs. What was the first song ever ripped to an iPod? Well, for that, we have to go back to early 2001, to the design and development phase of this new device. Spiller is a person, Cristiano Spiller from Venice, Italy. The dude is six feet, nine inches tall. Don't know why I mentioned that, but there you go. In 2000, he and some friends issued this single named after a nightclub in Miami. It was called Groove Jet, If This Ain't Love. According to those who were there on the Apple campus in Cupertino, California, this song was the first to be transferred from CD to MP3 to a prototype iPod. Why they chose this track has never been fully explained. I guess it just happened to be in the lab when they needed a CD. The iPod became the fastest-selling portable music device of all time and was the product that launched Apple on its way to becoming a $2 trillion company. Apple sold 350 million units in a third of the time it took Sony to sell that many Walkmans. In 2006, iPod sales made up 48% of all of Apple's revenue. A big part of that success had to do with the fantastically effective TV commercials for iPods, with the dancing silhouettes highlighting the white headphone cords while the coolest music of the day played. The very first band to benefit from appearing in an iPod commercial was the English electronic duo called Propellerheads. The ad agency chose this song from their 1998 album, Dex and Drums and Rock and Roll, for the first spot. It's called Take California. I thought you all might begin your tour here. The iPod changed everything about portable music, especially after the iTunes Music Store was made compatible with Windows computers in July 2002. Nothing could come close to what Apple was offering. Well, okay, there, there was the Microsoft Zune. Wait, no, no, that, that was a terrible failure despite a massive marketing campaign. I actually got a Zune. And I can tell you that it's quite terrible when compared to any generation of iPod you choose. And while there were other MP3 players out there, for most people, it was either get some kind of iPod or nothing. For many, the best iPod was known as the Classic, which could hold up to 160 gigs of songs. That's good for about 40,000 songs in your pocket. That's like 3,500 albums, which is a hell of a jump from those old Diamond Rio players that could hold maybe an hour's worth of music. What more could you possibly want than 40,000 songs in your pocket? How could it possibly get any better? We have reached the pinnacle of portable music. Well, no, because there was still a ways to go. Hang on. By 2006, the whole world was iPod crazy. Yeah, there were other options, but nothing really beat an iPod. What could possibly be better? Well, what about a phone that doubled as a portable music player? Mobile phones had gotten a lot smaller while their solid-state memories were getting a lot bigger. Everyone was already carrying around phones with them, so why not make something that meant that you didn't have to carry around two devices? 
Now, you may be surprised to learn that the first combination mobile phone and MP3 player came out in, wait for it, 1999. That's when Samsung released the SPH M2100. This is within a year of Sehan releasing the first ever MP3 player, and this set off a frenzy of development. Listen, by 2005, more than half the phones being bought in South Korea had MP3 playback capabilities. In September of that same year, Motorola released a model called the Rocker. This was the first phone that you could hook up to iTunes and download songs and then play them back with the iTunes music player embedded in the phone. It was a nice proof of concept, but really not all that useful. The Rocker could only hold about 100 songs, and transferring music to it was painfully slow. A number of iterations were in production as late as the summer of 2009, but, you know, not what you'd call a success. Most people were better off with the growing line of iPods, from the original style to the Nano to the Tiny Shuffle to the super cool iPod Touch, which had a big touch screen and could connect to Wi-Fi and had up to 32 gigs of storage with its first generation model. But that was just the warm-up. Let's go back to January 9th, 2007, when Steve Jobs stepped onto the stage at an event called Macworld. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. And Apple has been, well, first of all, one's very fortunate if you get to work on just one of these in your career. Apple's been very fortunate. It's been able to introduce a few of these into the world. In 1984, we introduced the Macintosh. It didn't just change Apple. It changed the whole computer industry. In 2001, we introduced the first iPod. And it didn't, just, it didn't just change the way we all listen to music. It changed the entire music industry. Well, today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. So, three things. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, 
a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. Yeah, no kidding. The iPhone was years ahead of any other device in the market. Funny story, though. When Steve Jobs was making that presentation, the engineers working on that project weren't entirely confident that the phone their boss had on stage would work as promised. They sat there, slugging back shots of vodka, hoping that the demo wouldn't crash and burn. It didn't, obviously, but they were absolutely terrified. The first iPhone went on sale on June 29, 2007, and through all the generations, it has sold somewhere north of 2.5 billion units. It turned Apple from a computer company into a phone company, and like I said earlier, a company worth $2 trillion. Here is the first ever iPhone commercial. It's better if you see it, uh, but let me just say that it's a series of clips from various TV shows and movies. Hello? 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 Uh, hello? 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 Oh, hello, Barney. Hello? 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 Bonjour. Hi. How you doing there? Yo! Hello? Hello. 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 Yo, yo. Hello. 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 The bad news, if you want to call it that, is that the iPhone almost completely cannibalized iPod sales. Apple stopped making the Nano and the Shuffle in the summer of 2017. But if you must have an iPod, you can still get one. But the only model available is the Touch, and it really isn't that much cheaper than a brand new low-end iPhone. But people still have use for what's basically an iPhone without the phone. For kids, for example, more than 100 million touches have been sold, which is about a quarter of all the iPods ever sold. But let's get back to the iPhone. Once it hit the market, every mobile phone had to come with a music player, which is where we are today. So we've reached the peak of portable music, right? Well, again, no. Rewind to about 2000, when Napster threatened to destroy the entire music industry through file sharing. Some people saw their chance with something they called streaming. First out of the gate was a platform called Rhapsody in December 2001. For a monthly fee, subscribers could stream as much of the company's online library as they wanted. This was way too radical for most record labels. And it was weird for music fans, too. Wait, we're... We're just accessing the music and we're not owning it. And when we stop paying our monthly fee, all the music goes away. Yeah, that's the way it was. Remember, though, that we were still locked into the ownership mindset back then. For the first hundred years of the music industry, the only way we could guarantee unlimited on-demand listening to music was to own it on a piece of plastic. Streaming was entirely virtual and you didn't own it. You rent it. It took a long time for people to come around to this idea. But now the entire music industry depends on streaming. Spotify is the biggest platform, followed by Apple Music. And in third place, Amazon, largely because people are streaming music through their Alexa smart speakers. But then we also have Tidal and Deezer and SoundCloud and Cubuzz and dozens and dozens of others. Even Rhapsody, the original streaming music service, is still with us. 
Although after they bought the intellectual property rights of Napster, they rebranded themselves with that name. Rhapsody is now known as Napster, a legal version. And today, outside of North Korea, every country on the planet has some kind of access to some sort of streaming service. Although, wait a minute, there is a North Korean streaming TV service called, and uh, I, I did not make this up, it is called Manbang. That uh, translates as everywhere. Lots of North Korean documentaries, apparently. Very entertaining. Places like India and the Middle East and China have their own streaming companies. They have names like Jukes and Patari and Enghami and Ghana, Melon and KKBox. As long as you have an internet connection and the right kind of portable device, you can instantly access somewhere beyond 75 million songs and counting from wherever you are on the planet. And if you want the video, that's no problem. Get that on your phone too. Everybody's got a YouTube app, right? Can music get any more portable than this? This song has been streamed about a billion times on audio streaming services, and the video is streamed 1.2 billion times on YouTube. Before we finish up, I want to go through a few other ways music was made portable. Does anybody remember hit clips? If you were a kid in the late 90s or early 2000s, you might remember these tiny toys from Hasbro that played a 60-second clip of some popular song of the day. It was like a gateway drug for kids too young to have a proper MP3 player. In fact, hit clips started as a toy that you got in McDonald's kids' meals. They then morphed into a device that cost about 20 bucks, and a cartridge of song clips, not full songs, but just clips, sold for $3.99. Some artists got into the heads of children this way. NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Simple Plan, Britney Spears, Avril Lavigne, they all participated by having bits of their songs on Hit Clips devices. And so did Smash Mouth. Let's play their clip from Hit Clips. Now, this is from the tiny built-in speaker, but you could also plug in some headphones for slightly better sound, but I think this makes the point of what Eclipse could do and also what it could not do. $3.99 for one minute and seven seconds of Smash Mouth. If we look beyond the West, there are special players sold in places like South Asia. For example, you can buy a device called a Caravan, which is a boombox-like player preloaded with 5,000 copyright-free Hindi songs. If that's all you want, nothing more to buy, nothing more to download. Then there's iGoGo, which is a combination MP3 player and shoulder massager. No, really, it, it comes in three parts. The unit with the music and two pads you place on your shoulders. There's the Wallet Tex, which is about the size of a credit card. No screen, no headphone jack, just a USB connection that you connect to um, whatever, I guess. And at the other end, there have been and continue to be Attempts at getting the public to purchase dedicated music devices that play high-resolution audio, which is digital music recorded at better than CD quality. I've tried a few of them, including one by Sony that sounds terrific. But again, how are you going to convince people to carry around another device along with their phones? It's probably not going to happen. Just ask Neil Young, who tried really hard to get his Pono music player off the ground. He started with this playback device in 2012. It was shaped like a Toblerone bar, which means it didn't really fit that well in your pocket. 
And although it worked and sounded great, nobody cared. It disappeared from the market in early 2017. We have come such a long way with portable music since that first transistor radio appeared on the market in 1954. The idea of not being able to take your music wherever you go is so alien. It used to be such a big deal, such a technological advance to be able to go for a jog while listening to music. But now you can load up some music on your Apple Watch and listen while you're swimming. All you need are some waterproof Bluetooth headphones and you're good to go. I've even seen a product that allows you to stream Spotify while you're in the water. 75 million songs available while you're doing laps in the pool, which, I'm sorry, it's just wild. So, how can music get more portable than what we've got now? I'll tell you. Implanted chips. And I'm not kidding. Elon Musk has a company called Neuralink, and he promises that we'll eventually consume music through a chip in our heads. Forget wireless Bluetooth headphones. The music will beam right into your auditory cortex somehow. It will happen. All ongoing history programs are available as podcasts. You can listen to them anywhere. They're very portable. Just hit up any of the podcast delivery platforms and you're good to go. We can connect on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. There's my website for updates 365 days a year through a journal of musicalthings.com. Get the free daily newsletter too and send email to alan and alancross.ca. They will be answered. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross.